Well, it's an unspeakable pleasure for me, really, to visit Crescent Church. I'm delighted that you have had me again, and I've enjoyed my contacts with you so much over the years. I always enjoy coming to preach in the cathedral, but uh, this morning it's the upper room, um, and uh, it's just great to see the place absolutely full, and I think maybe there's an overflow as well. So this is a great pleasure for Ruth and myself to visit you, and we have many happy memories of times here, and also of the work that a number of us did with... uh, Professor Nevin. Nevin was, Professor Nevin was president of our network for intelligent design and his place has been taken by Professor David Galloway, who is a Scot, a senior surgeon who has recently retired, but who was president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Glasgow. And so David and I and a number of other people around the United Kingdom uh, work away at this. We've been a little stalled because um, we've been trying to get recognition with the Charity Commission, um, but that has proved difficult for well, let me just say for ideological reasons. And so we're having to set up a small limited company in order to continue our work while we pursue recognition by the Charities Commission for some of the research work that we do. But as the chairman has indicated, as David has indicated, we fight a difficult battle uh, against many enemies, but we keep at it because uh, I'm intrigued by the title of your series, uh, which is... um, in exile, and uh, we are certainly in exile. Um, we are in exile intellectually, and we have just felt a number of us that, uh, however the many discouragements there are, and however hard it is, this is a battle worth fighting. And so, I do appreciate the expressions of support that I've had over the years from quite a number of you here in Crescent. And indeed, I think we had one or two events. Yeah, I think we had Michael Behe speaking over here in Northern Ireland, one of the foremost biochemists. Uh, in the design movement and his writings, uh, including his most recent book, Darwin Devolves, is material, especially if you're a student, that's worth reading. Now, thank you for having me to speak about uh, uh, being uh, confident on campus uh, and to be part of your student Sunday. This is a, a great pleasure indeed. Now, I have just had a little book published called Born in a Golden Age, Um, I'll say a little bit about this later, but I've been thankful to God for the life I've had um, in the uh, west of Scotland. And this age of human history, I think, is unparalleled in any other age in history by by its sheer progress, prosperity and peace. And like many of you, I have been very favoured. So I've written a little book about it called Born in a Golden Age. This started out as a series of essays that I thought I would write, and this is how you know I'm getting old, I thought I would write to leave behind for my family so that they would know what I was about. They don't always get it, but I thought they might take time when I'm gone to read it. But anyway, um, it's a series, an eclectic collection of essays and subjects that have been important to me. And when I showed it to John Riches, the publishers, in Kilmarnock, they said, yeah, we'd be very happy to publish that. So I brought copies with me today and they're available downstairs. So I write a little bit about family matters, about the Plymouth Brethren, to whom I owe so much. Uh, intelligent design, of course, education, evolution, and indoctrination. The importance of Christians in the marketplace, which is fairly close to what we're doing today. And I have a chapter entitled at the end, Still a Christian, uh, which is uh, an apologetic of why I'm still, uh, after all these years, a professing Christian. So the book is available downstairs. Um, here's the deal. I have a little three-year-old grandson who says, Papa, here's the deal. So here's, here's the deal. Uh, I would like the students in the congregation to feel free to take a copy. And I would urge you to do so because 
it will cover material about science and education that I think you will find important and useful. So please take a copy as a gift from me, uh, just to help you as you think about the challenges of being at university. Um, for others, please take one. <coughs> if you can leave me five pounds, that's fine. If you've come without your purse, just take one. Uh, and I just hope there's enough copies uh, for those of you who are interested. If not, we'll, we'll find a way of getting copies to you another time. So these are available downstairs in the foyer. Um, I may, of course, be uh, flattering myself. I may have to cut them all back uh, on easy jet tomorrow, but uh, I'd, I'd rather not do that. We kind of smuggled them in overweight uh, when we came last night. Now, there are two passages I would like us to read uh, today, and uh, they're in the Gospel, first of all, of Matthew, and then secondly, in the Gospel of Mark. So Matthew and chapter 22 would be my first reading this morning. Matthew chapter 22... And looking at verse 34 of this chapter. So let's hear God's word in a section which of the NIV is entitled, The Greatest Commandment. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And secondly, in the Gospel according to Mark... And in chapter 12, and reading from verse 28. Matthew chapter 12, and verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. And may the reading of Holy Scripture be a blessing to each one of us this morning. Now, my father came from the town of Fraserburgh in North Aberdeenshire. And uh, when he passed away, I was going through some of his papers and some of his belongings. He died for us at the agonizingly early age of 58. And the older I grow, the more I think about him. But among his papers, I think I came across the saddest letter that we have in the family. And it's a letter that is written by 
the rector of Fraserburgh Academy to my father's father, my grandfather. And in this letter, he is asking my grandfather to reconsider his decision to take my father, James, away from school. He writes, James is a clever boy and would do well at school and could go to university. But James was denied that opportunity because as the youngest of seven, uh, there was not the financial resources in the family for another member of the family to go to university. One or two of the others did. But my grandfather fought in the First World War and was wounded and struggled for the rest of his life to maintain full-time employment in the town of Fraserburgh. And so Dad, the youngest of seven, had to leave school and begin an apprenticeship as an engineer. Mind you, he did pretty well. He became a deep-sea sailor with the Orient Line and sailed from London to Australia during the 1930s, ending only at the outbreak of the Second World War. And during the war, he wanted to be in the Navy, but was kept at home to build anti-aircraft guns because he was an engineer. And on some of our family documents, he appears as a gunsmith, which he certainly wasn't, but that reflected the nature of his times. And I find it interesting that my father was born in 1914, in the months just before the outbreak of the First World War. And I was born in the last three weeks of the Second World War, actually on the 12th of April, 1945, the day on which Roosevelt died. My mum wanted Roosevelt to be my middle name. My dad rather wanted Roosevelt to be my middle name because he admired the American contribution to the war. But mum overruled him, and instead I got the family name MacIver. But I think it's interesting that my dad lived through the most turbulent years of the 20th century and arguably, given the slaughter and the evil that lay at the heart of the Second World War, uh, arguably the most terrible and turbulent time in all of human history. That I should have been born in 1945 and grown up in an age of peace and prosperity, I didn't even have to do national service. Not because there was something wrong with me, but just because it became no longer necessary when I reached the age at which it would have been mandatory to uh, previous generations. And so I consider myself to have been born in a golden age. I don't know what it's like in Ulster, but in Scotland we never stop whinging about our society and everything that's wrong with it. You would think that we lived in a dictatorship with nothing but injustice and trouble and poverty. And while I recognise that there are serious challenges in our society, if you cannot see that we are born in a golden age, then I think you need to think again. And part of that golden age for me was the opportunity to go to university. I went to university last century, it's a long time ago, um, I went to study chemistry. I had a chemistry teacher at school who, was, who made chemistry incredibly interesting. I, I despair when I hear people telling me they find chemistry boring. As a teacher and an inspector, I used to often say to people, if you can't make chemistry interesting, you'll not be able to make anything interesting. And that interest in chemistry and on the building blocks, the essential building blocks of the universe fascinated me from when I was in senior school and I studied chemistry at university. Doing chemistry in a large department in the University of Glasgow at a time when chemistry was in its heyday in the early 1960s 
and then stayed on to do a PhD, which was hard work, but also rewarding, and then spent my life teaching chemistry and inspecting chemistry and managing chemistry, and had a wonderful uh, professional life uh, out of chemistry, but all because in 1962, like a relatively limited number of my generation, I was able to go to university. I noticed just last week that in Britain today, over 50% of young people now get to university. And that, in part, fulfills one of the promises that Tony Blair made uh, when he was in power. I think when I went to university, it was around about 15%. But there it is. Now, one of the things I lacked in going to university was any kind of systematic career guidance. My dad didn't go, so he didn't know much about it and was happy to leave it to me. My mum studied English at university, uh, unusually in the 1930s, graduating MA from the University of Glasgow and being a primary school teacher, but she too didn't have much idea about career guidance in the sciences. So I just stumbled my way through it, doing what I felt I wanted to do, and my dad kind of subcontracting it to me that I would know best when I went to university. Actually, in all my stumblings, uh, I have to look back and see the providence and sovereignty of God because I chose uh, things that gave me a most interesting life. My son is a doctor, and I was once shared with him, I said to him, you know, Douglas, if I had my life to live again, I would probably do medicine. And he said, don't worry about it, Dad. You wouldn't make a doctor. And I said, why is that? He said, because you can't make quick decisions. He said, you're better thinking it out in the laboratory. A doctor has to make decisions fairly quickly and stick to them uh, and only change if it's absolutely clear it's been the wrong decision. I hope that's encouraging to the medics among you and those of you who are presently experiencing medical treatment. But I understood what he meant. And, of course... Uh, I think I did the right thing and uh, enjoyed the thing that I did. So it's a great privilege to have had an opportunity to go to university. I hate mentioning this to you who are students, but actually I didn't pay any fees at university. <laughs> Don't groan. I, I do understand the challenge of it now. and have several members of my family who are still to this day paying off their fees. Um, but there it is. And I think we sometimes uh, lose sight of the opportunities that are given to us um, in the age in which I have lived. I just hope uh, this uh, kind of age will continue throughout your lifetime as it has through mine. And so that's why I've called my book Born in a Golden Age and subtitled it Reflections on Faith, Family and Fallacies. Those of you who know me will know what the fallacies are. Um, but when I was talking to somebody recently about the, about the book, they said, are you sure it's the golden age? I said, well, I'm pretty sure. Well, he said, in some ways it's not a golden age. And he began to talk to me about the change in British society, about the secularization of the West, and the way in which we have lost any sense of our Christian base and the value of our Christianity. And over the summer, I said he had a point, although he did say it's not a bad title. Um, I, I don't think I want to put something like Born in a Desperate Age, because I'm not sure that would be a bestseller. I don't think this will be a bestseller either, but there you go. Um, but over the summer, there were three publications that crossed my desk, and uh, I found intriguing. The first of these was a survey, a social um, survey of the belief of people throughout the United Kingdom. Now, I'm never quite sure if these figures apply to Ulster or not. Ulster's the kind of Bible belt of the United Kingdom. But the reality is that in recent times, the number of people in Britain identifying themselves as Christian has declined remarkably. It was 66% in 1983. It was 50% in 2008. 
and it was only 38% in 2018. So you can see that Christian belief in Britain, even if it is only nominal, is in remarkable decline. And that's a trend that has that began back about 1955, ironically, following the Billy Graham crusades in Britain of the 50s, although it had nothing to do with him. But from that time on, the undercurrents of unbelief uh, grew stronger and stronger, and the figures for today are not encouraging. And one other figure is that confident atheism has risen from about 10% of the population in 1998 to 18% in 2008, and 26% in 2018. Now I mention these things because this creates an environment in which students study and learn, which is very different from the environment that I experienced and many of my contemporaries would have experienced in the second half of the 20th century. I'm not suggesting that university was, chemistry was like religious education. It wasn't. And there was very little mention made, made of God or the purpose behind the universe. But there was an underlying sense of a Christian worldview. And I remember at my graduation when I was, uh, when I graduated BSc in 1966 in the Great Hall of Glasgow, we started with a hymn which was Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. And a thousand people sang it together. They don't sing that one anymore. And the the reality is that times have changed. A second thing that I noticed uh, over the summer was the extent to which Christians are persecuted around the world. Uh, The Bishop of Truro, I think it is, prepared a report um, for the then Foreign Secretary, Secretary Jeremy Hunt, Um, And I I got a copy of that report, and here's one paragraph of introduction which says, Across the globe, in the Middle East, Asia and Africa, Christians are being bullied, arrested, jailed, expelled, and executed. Christianity is, by most calculations, the most persecuted religion of modern times. Yet, Western politicians until now have been reluctant to speak out in support of Christians in peril. And it's very easy for us in the West... Uh, to uh, understand the extent of persecution of Christians around the world. We see glimpses of it and snatches of it. But because we have not experienced that level of physical persecution, it is really hard for us to understand the way in which the Christian church is persecuted. Mind you, in many countries they are discovering that the more you persecute them, the more the church grows and expands. There's something hugely attractive about people whose convictions allow them to accept persecution without bitterness and rancor and show only love in return, people are impressed by individuals whose faith in a higher power, in a higher authority, or as the New Testament has it, in another king, one Jesus, even in the face of totalitarian governments, is profoundly moving. So there's a simple challenge for you. Just remember that when people sense, even in modern Britain, that you have a higher loyalty than the pursuit of material gain and pleasure, you have a higher loyalty, they may want to ask you why. You may not even need to promote it. Just let people see it and they will be profoundly moved when they understand why it happens. And I think that the message for us is that although the church 
is hugely persecuted around the world. There is a form of persecution in modern Britain um, which is a kind of ideological persecution of Christianity. In Scotland recently, the government, working with the police, introduced a series of posters about hate crimes. One of them said, and this was all over Glasgow and other parts of Scotland, Dear bigots, keep your message to yourself. End of sermon. Now, David Robertson, the Free Church Minister in Dundee, thought that this was pretty offensive because he was a minister who preached sermons. And the slight implication was that ministers are guilty of preaching hate. And so he very helpfully reported the Scottish government to the Scottish police, both of whom were complicit in the poster, and said to them that this poster violated not only the normal courtesies, but actually violated the rights of Christians uh, to worship God and to have their own convictions about social and moral issues. He received a rather long and opaque letter from the police, expecting that the, explaining that this wasn't the intention, and, but that they would not be pursuing the matter any further. I think it would have been rather nice for the Supreme Court to have heard the case by the police against the Scottish Government for a poster which they produced jointly. But that's the kind of climate we live in. And I think, sadly, this can really only get worse. And so to those of you who are students, I say, begin to think deeply about your faith. The first thing about your faith is not to publicise it and advertise it, as you'll want to do. The first thing is not to do that. The first thing is to understand your faith and to be convinced about your faith. That's the important thing. Because if you are convinced about the things you believe and the validity of a Christian worldview, then you will carry into university one of the most important and precious insights that, uh, that is desperately required. Now recently the third thing that crossed my desk was uh, an article in The Spectator by an Australian journalist called Greg Sheridan. He is studying in London um, and has written a very interesting book which I've only just begun to read entitled God is Good for You. I'm going to say a bit more about this tonight. And in his book he is arguing that what we are losing in the West is a sense of how all the things that we value in Western life are derived directly from a Christian understanding that every individual is made in the image of God. And the thing that the Christians, the early Christians did so well was they didn't have protest marches against the Roman government. Such a thing would have been unthinkable. But even if they had the liberty, that would not have been their way. Their way was to live a better way in their own lives. And to value the poor and the downtrodden and the outcast. When in the ancient world, in the ancient pagan Roman world, little girls were laid on the waste heap to die because they were useless, the Christians took them in. And reared them and made wives for their husbands who in turn became Christians. That's what Christians did. And at the level of everyday life, they showed the value of ordinary people. The downtrodden, the poor. That's where Jesus spent the most of his life. Amongst the poor and the lame and the sick and the dispossessed and the outcasts. 
That's why Christianity built the West. Because it cared about people. And it cared about the people that no one else cared for. And we need to find in the modern world a form of that. Which commends to our fellow students and to our fellow citizens. A sense of the value of life and of the world. Because it's God's world and that every individual is made in his image. This is what Greg Sheridan says. There is no faster way to get yourself classed as dim than by admitting that you hold to religious belief, especially Christian belief. Anti-Catholicism used to be the anti-Semitism of intellectuals. Now Catholics get no special attention. All believing Christians are regarded as stupid, eccentric, or malevolent. And this is the nature of the climate into which our country is turning. And I, I guess you will find at university what wasn't the case when I was there, which is the climate of university is increasingly secular and increasingly anti-Christian. There's a very striking book by a former BBC journalist called Robin Aiken. He's written a book called The Noble Liar. It's not about me. The Noble Liar. It's a book about the BBC. And it's a stunning and challenging book in which he visits at first hand the level of secular bias that runs through our major national broadcaster. And he talks about how even something happened in the 1940s, 50s and 60s in education, particularly in universities, that loosened the grip of Christianity. Now reflect on that. Something happened in our universities that loosened the grip of Christianity. As C.S. Lewis's brother discovered, even in the 1940s, Oxford dons were strikingly hostile to religious belief. Actually, in the 1940s, um, the BBC still followed the example of its founder. Um, and uh, during the war... C.S. Lewis broadcast to the nation a series of apologetic talks which formed the book Mere Christianity, which if you've never read, you ought to read. Can you imagine the BBC of today broadcasting a series on Christian apologetics? Mind you, last Tuesday, Melvin Bragg had a program on Nelson, John Nelson Darby and the Rapture, but that was a bit of, a, that was a bit of an exception, and uh, our friend Crawford Grimman, who teaches at Queen's, contributed to that programme. Might be worth going back and listening to it. But that would be untypical of the output of a national broadcaster. And he says, today, and students, I'd ask you to think of this, because nobody ever said this to me when I was a student, because this wasn't the case. Today, the academy is wholly dominated by an atheistic rationalism that goes unchallenged in the media. Now reflect on that. The academy is wholly dominated by an atheistic rationalism that goes unchallenged in the media. And in my humble opinion, this is not confined to our universities. This is what's happening to our school system. I am appalled to discover that education as I knew it is increasingly becoming indoctrination in a series of social mores, many of which are antithetical to Christian belief. Yes, I think it's right for us to focus today on our students. But if we're parents and grandparents, 
I think we really ought to focus also on our children, for times are changing. So, this is the environment in which many of us and many of you are trying to operate. I think I'll wait till tonight to say some more about the way in which the West has been secularised. The secular story has diversity, has, has Darwin for the past. We came from nowhere, we're all accidents. I sometimes think it's not surprising we have a mental health problem. I mean, if that's your philosophy of life, then there's not much reason for getting up in the morning, is there? I mean, what is the point if we're just mindless accidents of a meaningless universe? The climate of modern life is diversity. Anything goes. Whatever you feel you are, think you are, want to do, as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Although the people that you hurt are often not noticed in this grand claim. Then just go on with it. And this, of course, challenges the fundamental Christian beliefs of marriage and the home and the family. These things are severely under attack. And there's a new element now to the future, which is that it's all doom and disaster, and as one woman said uh, recently, the future's in our hands. To which I said silently in my heart, no it's not, it's in God's hands. I mean, God didn't have an off day when he created when He created coal and oil. I think God knows what he was doing, and I do think the future lies in his hands. Incidentally, that's not a scientific comment on climate change. I'm happy to talk about that another time. But do you see, we have a world in which the past is an accident, the present is whatever you want it to be, and the future is doom and disaster. Now I think as Christians, we have a much better story than that. We have a much more positive, wholesome, uplifting story to tell. And so I would say to you, we need to be careful that we don't just simply personalise our Christian faith and retreat into our churches. We certainly should not trivialise it and reduce its credibility by the kind of mindless assertions that sometimes are made in Christian circles. And we shouldn't just customise it so that we make ourselves comfortable within it. So, don't personalise it, don't trivialise it, don't customise it. But what to do is study it, and understand it, and live it out in your life. And if you get the chance, talk about it. But you know, there was a famous Christian in the past said that we should, everywhere we go, we should preach the gospel. Everywhere we go, we should preach the gospel. And, if necessary, use words. In other words, we should preach the gospel by the example of our lives and use words as and when we need them. Now to come to the two passages we read today, I want you to think about this as a mandate for university study and for students. What is the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord with your heart, with your soul, with your strength, and with your mind. Now this is a most complete description of how Christians should act in the world. Loving the Lord with our heart means that at the very seat of our emotions, we should enthrone Christ and God, and we should put our faith in Christ. We should put our faith in him as our Lord and our Saviour. We should choose to be his disciples. We should accept his cross as the means of our forgiveness. We should believe in his resurrection and we should live in the light of it. And we should love God with our heart so that our inner being responds to Christ our Lord in our heart. That's why Christians sing. 
Uh, singing hymns is a peculiarly Christian kind of thing. But there's a way in which we lift our hearts to God and we express that we love God in our hearts. The blood that Jesus shed for me, way back in Calvary, we sing it in our church sometimes, the blood shall never lose its power. And when we sing that hymn, I, I feel my heart missing, a, well not missing a beat, just having a double beat and thinking, that's what in my inner being I really believe, that blood shall never lose its power. And what about our soul? Well, our soul is that difficult to define part of a human being, but it's that part of our being that is creative, artistic, that does beautiful things. So if you're going to study arts, if you're going to study literature or design, or you're going to study paintings, or you're going to study music, then do it for the Lord and show how in the mind and consciousness that God has given you, you can create the most beautiful sounds the most beautiful forms that celebrate and glorify God. I read a book recently about great Victorians, and one of them was Pugin. And uh, Pugin was an Anglo-Catholic, and uh, I never really appreciated this. Well, you wouldn't if you were brought up in a gospel hall with a tin roof. But uh, Pugin built buildings that pointed to the Almighty and celebrated the glory of God. You've actually got one of them here, and I'm glad you're renovating it rather than knocking it down or covering it over with plasterboard. These men had a sense, a sense that God is infinite and bigger than anything we can say. And you need a building, well, you don't actually, but that was their view. You need a building that raises the minds of people to the transcendent and shows them the glory of God. And so if you're a student of the arts, Think about serving the Lord with your soul and giving your very best of your creative energies to the Lord so that others will see in your work and in your approach something that reaches beyond yourself. And if you're a pig-ignorant scientist like me, go and get a few lessons on how to have a bit of soul and to enjoy beautiful things round about you. And then your strength. Serve the Lord with your strength. Well, our strength is the ability to do things to work at them. It's got to do with engineering and it's got to do with industry and it's got to do with effort. You won't be a successful student unless you work hard. And, and it is hard work. I think the hardest thing I ever did was a PhD. It was agonizingly difficult. But I felt it was my duty to see it through with all my strength because we love the Lord our God with our heart, our soul, our strength. And of course, to students and to all of us, to love the Lord with our minds. You know, one of the ironies of the modern world, one of the ironies of the modern world is that reason is set against faith. I mean, this is Dawkins' great claim that faith is fantasy and fables and the reason's all on his side. Uh, there's an intriguing interview that he does in the film Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, when he's asked how life began. Says no idea. No, that's what reason gets you. No idea where it came from. No idea where the universe came from. Uh, this is reason. Uh, actually, we're encouraged to serve God with our reason and our minds. You know, the whole birth of modern science in the West was only possible because its pioneers were committed Christians who believed that the universe was rational, predictable governed by laws that were immutable and therefore could be studied and understood and in our generation turned to the benefit of human beings. So, when we go to university or when we do anything intellectual, 
we serve God with our mind. So that's one of the sadnesses, and I've seen a little of this in my upbringing, that some forms of evangelicalism become anti-intellectual. And that's a huge mistake, because we're asked to serve the Lord with our heart, our soul, our strength, our mind, and our neighbour as ourselves. We'll do a bit about that tonight. So I need to draw this to a close. And so I'm speaking particularly to those of you who are students today, and to say to you, I think there are four things that you should think about and that you need to do. One of them, first of all, is this. You need to develop intellectual resilience. You need to understand your faith at a level that you are convinced about it. Now this is before you get to talk to other people about it. You need to have intellectual Christian resilience. You need to understand what it is you believe. It's getting more and more difficult to witness the Christian faith, particularly in academic circles. But the first thing is in your heart and mind to believe it for yourself. And if you have misgivings and doubts, then talk about them to trusted friends. Read Christian apologetics. Try to understand a Christian worldview. And have within yourself a resilience. Because we are, in a sense, in exile. We're trying to be Christians in an age of scientific materialism that treats what we believe as nonsense. We need to believe it before we try to speak about it. So resilience. Uh, A survey in the United States discovered that 70% of Christians who go to university question their faith and most of them lose it. And largely because of Darwinism. Because it is hard to stand against the tide that we came from nowhere by chance, mutations, and everything developed by accident. I mean, I don't know how people get away with this. It's the most appalling nonsense. But this is the climate of our time. And as Christians, we need resilience to know how to deal with it. Secondly, you need resolve. You need to say, in your heart, as Paul taught, the, as Barnabas taught the Christians at Antioch, to remain true to the faith. You need to settle in your heart that you're a Christian and to remain true to the faith. Thirdly, you need to develop relationships. You need to build relationships with people around you at university. The Christian Union is the obvious place to be. You need Christian friends and Christian colleagues. But you also need to build relationships with those you study with and those you work with who are not Christians. Because how are they going to know about Christianity if they don't meet you? And if they don't learn how you live your life. And they're not going to be persuaded necessarily by the things you say to them. But they might read in your life a better story. They might read in your life a different kind of life that they would like to have. And so these relationships, and this is what Christians have always done in their evangelism, is to make relationships with people around them. And to commend Christ to them by example and if necessary by word. And fourthly, and with this I'm going to finish, I want to say to you, learn in your student's years to listen for God's call and to hear God's call in your life. He might want you to be an engineer. He might want you to be a doctor. He might want you to be a nurse. He might want you to be a teacher. It's hard to think of more important areas for Christians to be in. He might want you to be in business. One of the things we forget in this country is that if you don't have business earning money, then there's no social services for anybody. So he might want you to be a pioneer or a mover and shaker in business and in industry. Don't be turned aside by trivial comments about what you're doing 
What you are doing is critically important and may map out the rest of your life. So in your studies, listen for God's call. Get a sense of what you like doing, what you're good at doing, what you can master. Get a sense of the things that are not for you and leave that to others. Because your life matters. Your life matters in the life of the kingdom of God. And your contribution is critical. And when you get to university, and maybe some of you have started, listen carefully over your university years for the call of God in your life to whatever area of work, to whatever area of profession. Only a minority will be called to Christian ministry because we need multitudes of Christians to invade our public life and to serve Christ in the critical areas of our society. I hope I've helped you to think about that. Your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind. Develop resilience and resolve and relationships and learn to respond to God's call. I finish by telling you a little personal story. One of the greatest joys of my life was a colleague I worked with at university. We worked together in the laboratory doing a PhD. We frequently had discussions about Christian faith and about Darwin and evolution and I never felt, I never felt I got anywhere. Some years later, I met my friend. We both went into education and we met up. And he said, Alistair, I want to tell you something. He said, I've become a Christian. Oh, I said, that's wonderful. How did it happen? He said, well, he said, I noticed from the first time we worked together, and forgive me, I noticed there was something a bit different about you. And he said, I was curious. And then he said, I noticed something else. He said, I noticed that in your desk you had a copy of the Bible. And he said, one night when I was late, working late in the lab on my own and at a time in my life when things were going very badly, he said, I opened your desk and I took your Bible home. I'm so pious I didn't even notice it had gone. <laughs> and he said, I began to read that Bible. And then he said, some months after we left, we parted ways. He said, I read the Sermon on the Mount, and at the end of it, he said, I knelt down at my bed and I said, Lord Jesus, if you're for real, come into my life. And uh, he became a teacher. He went to Israel to teach in Christian schools, married a lovely Christian girl, and has spent a life as a Christian. And when I was 60, I invited him to a 60th mm birthday party with 60 friends well we actually managed 56 60 friends he wrote me this lovely letter and said I need to thank you that you are the person who first showed me the way to the Lord and I wasn't even aware of it but just because I tried to be a Christian and I never thought it was a particularly good one it wasn't my apologetic arguments that changed his mind it was just as he said there's something different about you and reading the Bible he found the Lord. Do you know something? Those of you who are at university, you're not only going to be students, you're going to be evangelists. And God bless you.